So, Michael, what's news with you? Mate, it's all about the recovery. It's all anyone's talking about. We've got federal-level government announcement. By the time people hear this, it may have already happened about how we're going to bring life back. State governments are running around thinking about how to lift lockdown. So uh, it is on for young and old, or will it be? That's the question, Luke. (laughs) I think it will be. Everyone seems to be uh, pinning a lot of hopes on a pretty big... Today's Thursday, the 7th of May. Um, Probably shouldn't time check that, but we will. Um, I hear there's a big announcement coming tomorrow. What can you tell us? Yeah, Federal Cabinet will make its announcement. There's a lot of posturing already going on about what lockdown lift will look like. A few key voices in the mix, AHA as ever, and the Restaurants and Catering Association uh, having voice at the federal level. So it will then be up to the states really to decide what happens. And I think what we're conscious of is that, yes, what you can lift physical distancing at some level, but then... The price of that is how does a business trade in those circumstances, which is, I think, a neat segue to introducing our guests for today's podcast, which are none other than Rohit Rupshand and Michael Goodman of the Dandy Partnership, who run hospitality businesses in Singapore and Hong Kong. Now, you might be thinking, why would we have a chat with those guys? That's not unreasonable. The reason we thought we'd get them on really has been that if you understand what the pandemic looked like coming into Singapore and Hong Kong, businesses in those markets had to trade under some level of physical distancing for a period at least prior to lockdown. And so no one knows exactly how we're all going to do this. We thought we may as well get some people on who've had different perspective from another market and pick their brains. Yeah, they're, uh, yes, very, very uh, relevant guests. We both know them well. They're good guys. Um and Michael, as well, we should mention, has a kind of a global-facing uh, consulting and design business. So he's got fingers in a few different pies. So let's uh, jump in and have a chat. Sounds good. Well, welcome to the Back of House podcast, gents. It's got yeah, to a great it's start. Not, it's Mike, not a video cast, right? No, nah, nah, Mike Goodman's already got up. He's walked out. <laughs> good timing. Yeah. Nice drop. Rohit, you're the man of the hour. Yeah. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, well, everyone's trying to work it out. It's myself, Michael Rodriguez, uh, Luke Butler, co-host of the Back of House Potler, Potler, Back of House Podcast, and uh, we've got Rohit Rupshand. Have I pronounced that correctly, Rohit? Did I get close? Yeah, you got it. And uh, and Mike Goodman of the Dandy Partnership and other enterprises besides, which for people who aren't familiar with um, those businesses, I guess uh, I'm particularly familiar with a, a lot of the venues in Singapore because I've spent a good amount of time and a good amount of money, I might add, in those venues, <laughs> uh, and the experience has been highly worth it. Um, but uh, we really wanted to get you chaps on today because of your experience in markets outside of Australia uh, because the world right now is trying to work out how the fuck we reopen uh, hospitality sectors that we've shut down and so it's really just an opportunity to shoot the breeze uh, and swap intelligence. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. Hmm. So <laughs> I guess I'll sort of kick things off. Like, Were we supposed to say more? I <laughs> no, no, no. no. Well, it, would sound like it, it would sound like it was scripted, which clearly it hasn't been. But uh, <laughs> if it was to be scripted, we'd be saying um, that 
the experience in Singapore, specifically in Hong Kong, I guess in the last three months has run a different course. Uh, these were territories that seemingly got COVID under control in the early going and then uh, um, maybe that hasn't been maintained. Singapore is quite sort of second wave. The, se- the, the second wave is the discussion and particularly from an Australian context, everyone here is now paranoid about getting a second wave of COVID on reopening. So I guess just to give people a bit of an understanding, I think uh, and we've got, uh, Mike, maybe if you can speak to Singapore, Rohit, if you can <clears throat> sort of speak to Hong Kong. Uh, sure. Just what was the journey like, say, since January when this thing started through till today? Start with you, Mike, maybe. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it was kind of crazy when it popped up, I think. Um, you know, uh, we at, at our restaurants were, were really having a great start to the year. Um, we had finished really strong last year. Things were looking good. A lot of talk about recession in, in the air in general. So I think there was always a little bit of nerves about that, but, um, you know, and, 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 you know, neon pigeon has, has been open for, um, you know, what, uh, you know, five, 45 years now. So, um, you know, the reality is that I'm, I'm kind of, I'm always paranoid that like one day we're, I'm just going to walk in. It's going to be empty. <laughs> I don't I don't know what that is. Like I have, I just feel like restaurants have a, have a life cycle and, I, and every day I'm like, Oh man, we must be past ours. <laughs> but it, keeps, it keeps kicking and getting stronger than ever, which is amazing. But, um, but then it's all hit and, and um, you know, it, it, for us, it was a very slow wind down. Um, what I think what happened was, Originally, you had uh, people, you know, obviously China was blowing up and then it was starting to hit Singapore quite a bit and, and some other areas in Asia and had just as it had started to expand to other parts of the world here in the States, uh, sorry, here in Singapore, it was it was trickling, right? Like business was still pretty good in the CBD. But once you got out of the CBD, it really started to taper off a little bit. Rohit and I were kind of very thankful that we had a good few weeks there where it kept going. I think it's because we have a lot of foreign customers as well. Our business probably splits, call it 50-50, foreign and local. Um, And then when it started really decimating Europe, that's when I think all of the expats, they were either coming back from Europe and or were talking to people back in Europe. And I think they all started, started to get a little bit more scared. And I think everything here got a little bit more serious. So then it was like, okay, next step down and, you know, okay, 20% less revenue than the week before and 20% less than the week before that and then 20% less than the week before that until, you know, it, it was not ripping a Band-Aid off. It was like the world's slowest removal of a Band-Aid. It was just painful um, as we went through the various stages and steps of social distancing down to a full stop, which was, you know, that was over a course of what, Rohit, like five or six weeks. Yeah, Absolutely started around you know the 15th of March so like Michael was saying I think it came a little bit late um, and we started feeling the effects of it a little bit later Um, but then every week has just been you know a a slow grind um, of of revenue for the worse Um, you know on the 20th of March Singapore introduced some social distancing measures which were a one meter distance between tables rule um, no events of, you know, uh, 250 people or more. 
and then you know temperature checks, tracking of people, hand sanitizer in venues. So all the things that other places were introducing, but I think they spooked or that started spooking people. Um, you know, a lot of people weren't used to having their temperature check going into places or having to fill out tracking forms and a lot felt, you know, like it was an evasion of privacy, um, you know, not realizing that that was what was needed to contact trace with Singapore was doing exceptionally well at the time. So, mm. you know, I think the measures that they took, you know, were, were really good to, to control the virus um, until, you know, it just all kind of went out of control. I, I think the, we got a little, sorry, I think out of the country, we got a little overconfident. Yeah. I think that was what the tipping point was. We were, we didn't, sh we didn't want to shut our borders, I think. Right. And, you know, New Zealand was like, yeah, that's it. Shutting it. Like we're not mm -hmm. letting this get out of control. And I think Australia was, was the next one right after that. And then we kind of lagged slightly. And then our next wave was all that second wave of people coming in from overseas and bringing it. So now we've been on, in our, circuit breaker which is our lockdown uh for about uh what about five five weeks now and um they're just starting to ease off some stuff now they're going to do gradually over the course of the next you know eight weeks or so we didn't um get a huge opportunity here i think to trade through um any real kind of like correct me if i'm wrong mike but i think i was overseas when i don't know i was overseas when things kind of got shut down i think it happened very very quickly from going um, from initial restrictions to being fully closed. What was the, and, and your sounds like, or you said, what, five weeks, I think, what was the reaction like from general population, um, bearing in mind you come from two quite different sort of government um, setups over there, um, you know, across Hong Kong, Chinese, and then um, and Singaporean. Were people pretty accepting or... Um, or uh, I guess uh, ready to undertake the restrictions as they were rolled out, or was there a bit of backlash? And and how did you feel as venue operators operating in that kind of climate where you could actually have a venue in which people could potentially experience an outbreak? That that last bit was kind of nerve wracking for me. Um, I mean, I guess I'll get to that in a sec. But for Singapore, I mean, I can't speak to Hong Kong. I'll leave that for Row, of course. But for Singapore, I, I, one of the things I've always it's kind of a double-edged sword, I guess, you know, um, I, I think that we are a very, uh, color inside the lines country. And, and, um, so in, in terms of the innovation front, sometimes we're not leading the charge. Um, but on the other hand, in a case like this, I think everybody getting on board, I think it was, it was rather easy and it was, um, you know, it, it, it was pretty quick for people to, to, to recognize, Hey, Listen, we trust our government. Government's got our best interest at heart, and 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 we're all going to do what we have to do to to kind of get on board with it. But yeah, I was I was nervous because we had the Grand Hyatt, which had um, one of those early clusters here in Singapore, and um, apparently all hotels originally were trading at like fifty percent of normal business, and then but the Grand Hyatt was trading at half of that. So it was like, oh, man, if we get a case and word gets out that we have a case and, you know, you're nervous for your business. And also in an ethical sense, I don't know, Rohit and I just kept checking in with each other and we kept asking each other like, oh, man, wait, should we be doing this? Should we should we not be doing this? Should we, what do we do now? And it's I, I don't know. It's kind of like having a kid. Right. I guess I don't have kids. You guys do. But like, you don't know what you're doing. 
<laughs> you just got to figure it out. And every day it's going to be something mm-hmm. new. And you're like, wow, did I do that well or did I do that really poorly? <laughs> I think there's two of us here that know what we're doing. I'll let you figure out who that one is. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about in Hong Kong, bro? Yeah, look, in Hong Kong, it was, um, it was very interesting because the government very quickly um, put in social distancing measures. Um, they went a little bit more extreme than Singapore. So it was 1.5 meters of table distance and it was only limited. People could only go out to restaurants in groups of four. So no more than groups of four. Um, and then they further changed that um, to require everyone going into a restaurant to wear face masks. So, um, you know, that almost kind of broke people, um, especially the expat community um, who, again, aren't used to, you know, uh, being restricted on things that they can and can't do. Um, So a lot of, uh, there was a lot of pushback from the expat community on, you know, they didn't want to wear face masks and they didn't want to come into venues with face masks and take them out only when they were eating or drinking. Um, but that was required and, you know, in, in a certain way, it actually gave us a sense of security with our team and our staff because they felt unsafe with people coming in. They didn't know where, uh, you know, people had been and, you know, what, uh, whether they had the virus or not. But, you know, just the, the physical barrier of having the face mask, which as staff, they were required to wear very early on um, for the guests as well, I think, provided a sense of safety and comfort for uh for them as well. I guess part of the reason we wanted to get you on and probably a bit self-interestedly, like we're sitting on the cusp of these different Australian governments trying to work out a regime in which people go back to trading and you can imagine what the discussion's like. On the way down it was four square metres per person and no gatherings of more than 500 in beer gardens. Uh, I'm not suggesting anything about uh, the decision-making process there, but, you know, there is a difference between four square metres per person and a table distance of one metre or family groups coming in together and who, who, who are cohabitating anyway, so why do they now need to sit two metres apart and so on and so forth? Um, so I think any of those sorts of, it sounds like there's been a couple of different approaches in the different jurisdictions and there's some discussion there, but where this fundamentally gets to is how can you produce a, sustainable is probably too strong a word, but what's your best model of business at, in this time? So how do you manage people in your venue? How do you add in delivery takeaway options? Is that profitable or not? Is that an investment cost that you're not going to receive the return on. These are some of the sorts of things that we're trying to work our way through. So say, for example, uh, you, you look at the delivery model and I think, Rohit, you, you were just mentioning um, about some high-profile interviews, two in two days, one yesterday, one today. Uh, but in terms of the discussion on delivery services and, and their role, like maybe you guys can chat to us about how you guys approach delivery generally in, in this time. And, um, and, you know, how, how can that aspect of your business turn into a, a profit centre in and of itself? Is that possible? Yeah, look, delivery um, is very different to uh, dine-in business. Um, you know, there's no, there's no secret about that. It's just not 
anywhere close to the numbers, not anywhere close to the volume, not anywhere close to the revenue that we would get from Diamond Business. However, it is something, right? So, you know, that's been the, the balancing act that we've been trying to play is, um, you know, is it worth it? Does it help us cover costs? Does it help us keep people employed? Does it help us stay visible? Does it help us stay relevant? Um, you know, of course, at the end of the day, we're in the hospitality business and, you know, hospitality is what we love to do. You know, how can we translate that to delivery and getting that feeling for people at home so that they can enjoy our brand and what we put out with our food and drink at home as well? Um, look, it's been a really challenging time um but it's been really fulfilling to be able to get products out be able to get you know our delivery up and running be able to get our team and our staff motivated to you know come in and cook and you know put put great product out um to be able to you know get some revenue in um like i said it's it's not a sustainable business model, if you will. We know that we're in it for, you know, it started with uh, uh, one month in Singapore that got extended to two. Um, the hope is, you know, now that we're seeing the cases in the community in Singapore start to uh, taper off, that that does, you know, turn into two months um, for certainty. And after that, we get to open for dine-in in whatever capacity that is, because that is essentially where, you know, the business does hopefully become a little bit more sustainable, but we don't know what that is going to be like in terms of restrictions and measures and, and you know, again, what the uh, what the numbers look like. I mean, what's your gut? Do you, do you think you can land a model that is uh, a bit of, like, delivery when you would not have necessarily done it before combined with physical distancing of tables? Uh, could you get to, and you know, break even or... Or do you think there needs to be rent relief and government subsidies on top? Like, what's your sense of it? I don't know about Australia, but, you know, in Singapore and Hong Kong, um, the model for a long time has been pay top dollar for rent and that takes care of, you know, the, the footfall, the traffic and, you know, all of that. Um, to me, that, that model needs to fundamentally change. Um, you know, I don't think that model is sustainable, even with the combination of delivery, um, because we're reducing the number of people coming into the venue. You know, that reduction now doesn't make up for the top dollar rents. That reduction doesn't make up. You're not getting the footfall to pack your places to the brim and get, you know, those extra revenue dollars to make that business worthwhile and that location worthwhile. So, you know, fundamentally, I think there needs to be a shift in the business model and that's going to have to start with landlords. Um, again, you know, I find governments, at least this part of the world, reluctant to get involved with private owners and private landlords in terms of rent relief. So, don't see that happening. Um, the only way it can happen is if the industry comes together and bands together and just like, listen, we're just not paying these rents and, you know, we gotta, we got to retool what the model looks like. I think, I think that's, that's a good point. And, you know, I think, um, look, it's, it's, uh, it depends on what you call sustainable, right? I agree with Rohit, it's not sustainable. But if sustainable is, you know, because I heard you use the phrase break even, yeah, if we open our venues after the lockdown and we maintain approximately the amount of delivery we're doing today. Plus we have a reduced amount of people coming into the venue. We can get by, we can break even that's, that's doable. 
you know, I think the bigger question for the industry is not going to be, you know, can, can people like Rohit and our teams get by, but how long will companies be willing to get by for, you know, how long is it going to be before somebody says, you know what, there's this other industry sector that I can go do instead of restaurants, that's going to be more stable that I can build up faster. I don't know when restaurants are coming back, if it's going to be a year, two years, three years. So in the meantime, I'm going to, you know, not waste my opportunity cost. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to, I'm going to figure out what I want to do. So I'm going to, I'm going to shut my venues. And, and, you know, for, for Rohit and I, you know, we, we've just always approached this as, as we just got to keep open to everything. You know, Rohit sent me a great article this morning and it's exactly what I've been thinking and, and what he's been thinking. And we just don't haven't figured out exactly what we're going to do yet. So it's not like we have the answers, but we know that we are not anymore looking towards how do we go back to the way it was. We're looking towards how do we get to the next thing, right? And one of the quotes in this article was really interesting. It, we're not looking to reopen, right? This is, a, this is not a relaunch. This is a totally new business in, in essence. And so what is that new business and what does it mean and how do we get a part of it and how do we stay ahead of it? And there's, you know, there's guys here in Singapore who are doing it really well you know, staying ahead of the delivery business and, and, and doing what they got to do because they're worried about losing their dreams. Right. And then there's other guys who are lagging behind. And I think, you know, uh, you know, it's just it, that, you know, those guys will start to fade away, I think in time, but you know, where does it go next? What is the future of restaurants? Like, you know, we're not going to see, I mean, we all want to be social, so there'll be something, but you know, neon pigeon, I think neon pigeon fundamentally is going to need to change. It is such a communal, packed to sardines, get together, you know, snuggle up. I, you know, I, I think um, in Melbourne, uh, Chin Chin uh, probably feels close. To, and, and Chin Chin feels luxurious in terms of space between tables compared to the Pigeon. <laughs> like, are people going to be freaked out? They're not going to want to go in after, even after COVID because there's, you know, there's aftershocks. I mean... If, if, you know, what's interesting is I was here when SARS was here and, um, and, and, you know, that's, that's how, how much of an old timer I am at, at being in Asia at this point. And, you know, but what's interesting is even before COVID, the masks being worn, that all came from SARS that like af after SARS, everybody got used to wearing masks whenever they traveled on a regular basis. And to this day before COVID, you would still see that. So What's going to be the ripple effect from COVID? You know, is it going to be more masks? Maybe. What else is it going to be? Is it going to be that people just don't want to be in places as much with, as you know, a bunch of people? I mean, right now, Rohit and I are brainstorming on what's next. Because, it, it, so it's really interesting. It's, sorry, I'm kind of rambling. But it, it's really interesting because if you ask us five weeks ago, the state of affairs, four weeks ago, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, this week, every answer is different because every week we're, we're uh, adapting to something new. So the first couple of weeks we were like, oh man, people are freaked out that they're not going to be able to get food. We got to get frozen product ready that we can make frozen product for people. They can stack it in their freezer and then they can break it out whenever they want it. Great. We took two weeks to do that. And then over the course of three weeks, people, the, the food source people realized was stable and they stopped panic buying. And now we no longer needed that product. So we still offer it. And there's still some people buying it. But now it's like, okay, how do we look ahead to not what people want now? How do we get ahead? So 
after the lockdown is over, you know, I could envision a world where people want to entertain in their homes more, but don't want to cook. So how can we meet that demand um, and, and, and think ahead to that where you're going to have, you know, those groups of eight or 10, instead of meeting in a venue, might meet in somebody's house. And is that even, you know, am I full of it, right? Like, is that even what, that's just us thinking out loud going, oh, this might happen. We, nobody knows, right? It's crystal ball territory. What if you look at, well, actually, I'm going to start this question again. In terms of support that we touched on earlier, because I think that will play a pretty fundamental role in what the industry looks like afterwards, just by virtue of, you know, high level of support will mean there are more business around operating at the end of this when restrictions are lifted. Um, we've got things here like JobKeeper, for example, which I believe has been committed to for around six months. So the government will subsidise wages here to the tune of seven fifty a week, fifteen hundred a fortnight, helping people people stay employed and taking the pressure off businesses when they reopen. That will save a lot of businesses, I, I would suspect. Um, won't save everyone, obviously. What what level of government support have you received in either Hong Kong, Singapore, or both? Um, is it effective? And then I guess it's a <clears throat> follow on from that. Um, what will the markets look like in each of those locations afterwards in terms of do you forecast a fair bit of attrition? Um, you know, high volume of attrition might mean that the ones that survive are actually stronger because there's fewer venues to visit. Like have you, have you sort of played through all of those varying scenarios and um, uh, I guess primarily considering the level of support and um, success rate you might see in businesses? I'm going to let Ro cover that because he's been – painstakingly spending ridiculous amounts of time calculating and recalculating all the government subsidies we're getting. Yeah, listen, the truth of it is without the subsidies, we wouldn't be here having this conversation with active businesses. So, you know, it's been critical for us to stay in business. Um, the support that we received from the Singapore government has been critical for us to stay in business. Um, you know, they've done really well to come out with similar uh, that they call the job support scheme here. And it's been 75% of um, local Singaporean salaries for the months of April and May. And that continues on at 50% for the F&B industry for another four months. Um, so, you know, total of six months and, you know, pretty, pretty generous. Um, another one's been 100% property tax relief to property owners that are now required to pass down that property tax relief to tenants. So that amounts to a month, a little over a month in rent-free for um, F&B tenants. Um, outside of that, again, you know, we still need more support. Um, and in order to survive, that support is critical. Um, what shape and form that comes in, again, is seeming like, you know, the government's committed to the job support scheme. Um, outside of that, it's, you know, appealing to the generosity and kindness of landlords and suppliers and partners and, you know, people that we can work with, which, you know, it's, it's tough. Like, you know, I think landlords are very reluctant to come out and, you know, change their business model that has worked so well for them and, you know, be like, oh yeah, here's a, a month rent free because you know this will give you a chance to you know survive for the next you know two or three years. They're, they're just reluctant to do it, and you know it seems like we're going to be in a tough spot. It's just a matter of you know when those subsidies run out. Generosity and landlords are 
not two phrases that a lot of people think <laughs> go well together. <laughs> so I think it, I think that's been that's been really the the, the toughest bit is you know it, it's like it just becomes a standoff, right? Like at that point. So you know the wages have been great and the tax rebate is great, but the reality is you know if, if we're going to be expected to pay rent for the for the latter half of of May, that's just not realistic. So have you got uh, any thoughts on how dra- how different, you know, moderately or drastically the market will be there in terms of offerings? Do you think it's going? There's going to be a, quite a few fall over, or is that something you can comment on? I, I, I think it's going to be tough. I think there's I think there's definitely going to be a lot falling over. Um, I don't think we've necessarily seen it yet. I think you know one of the things that's interesting to me is that we're we're still in the health crisis. The health crisis is just part one. The financial crisis, it's just like as bad as it looks now, it's just getting started. And, and you know, you can't just stop an economy and then just start it. It just doesn't work that way. So um, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people who had some cash flow hanging around and they're using that cash flow. Uh, in order to sur- help them survive over these next few months. And I think the harsh reality of reopening is going to come. And I don't think, I don't think the business is going to come back anywhere near what it came at before. And then I think it's going to be at that point, you're going to start to see people fail who, because they, they spent the money during the closure period. Honestly, you know, I mean, uh, if you were just talking pure financials, pure business, and, and there wasn't a human element and, and the values of our company and the people that we care about and all those things. But if you were just talking purely financial, if we could shut everything, walk away and come back in a year, we'd probably be smarter. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. And what's the actual status of borders into Singapore and Hong Kong at the moment? Uh, are they open or are they open for business or emergency travel only? What's the status? We're shut here in Singapore. In fact, I, I have employees who have been overseas now for several months. They're on employment visas, so they're foreigners on employment visas. They can't come back into the country. They have to apply to be let back into the country and... I, I think mid-June, if we're lucky, we might be able to get them back in. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting from a, just the, comparing the different jurisdictions what one and the bubble conversation. One thing Australia has is, of course, a 20 million-plus population who love to travel, and if the health crisis is over and borders are shut, the opportunity is for interstate travel or intrastate travel, and I think that the hope or ambition of government at the moment is to try and catalyse that. But, of course, the point you make is is well made, Mike, which is that it's frying pan into fire. We get through the health crisis just to end up in a some sort of economic um, um, crunch uh, and uh, how, how we navigate our way out of it um, is, yeah, what, what will take up much of our minds and discussions like this for the next little while. Um, yeah, look, I, and I think you can. I think you can count on that, right? How bad it will be, nobody knows, right? That's crystal ball territory again. But I think you can count on it. There's, you know, having having a 
a second wave of pain as we reopen and a lot of people not being ready for that. Um, and so, you know, I think it's critical for everybody to start thinking what is next? What's, what are people going to want when we reopen and how do we, how do we create a business out of that? And, and I think you make the point well, really well made, which is about capital, because it's great to conserve your capital now only to bet the house at the beginning of an economic crunch, in which case you go out anyway. You know, it's kind of how do you sort of plan your way through to back-to-back problems, I think. Uh, and I guess the, it, it comes to uh, government and trying to, uh, I hope what some of these conversations help us all to do is to work out what levers government has to pull, when, what support they can provide and how landlords need to reconsider their model. Because what you're describing I think is very true of the Sydney market as an example. I think that uh, our overdeveloped precinct strategy where large property developers come in, build office towers, where the rented yield is justified often by the quality of hospitality at the bottom, um, you know, that model is is strained, will be very strained simply because we won't have 100% occupancy in the tower for starters, which means that the F&B won't be trading at the level it needs to um, to, to make banks. So what, what, what does that look like? Um, well, the whole CBD model could function, you know, could in essence change. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I, my other, my other business is a, is a consulting and interior design business. It's a very collaborative business. It's people being in an office together, working together. We're now all working from home and doing a lot of things remotely. And I'm looking at it going, well, I've got space in my office for 20 people. Well, hang on a second. If I cut one day a week and we all work a four day work week, and then two days a week, everybody works from home and two days a week from their office, my office can actually go up to 40 people instead of 20. And so now I can look at the future of my business differently. Whereas I think before COVID, we never would have, we needed a push, a force to consider working from home being realistic for our industry. Now that we have no choice and we're, we're figuring it out because necessity is the mother of invention, we're, we're gonna now look at how can we carry this with us in the future and that may fundamentally change the CBDs of the world if, mm-hmm. if companies need less and less footprint, which you were already seeing with the co-working spaces taking over over the last bunch of years, right? So now tack in people working from home and all this. It, it, this could be a very, very different landscape. And, you know, whatever you bet on for a, a spot for your restaurant a year, two years ago, might be a very, very different case as the map is redrawn. That came up with, uh, we had a chat recently with Jess uh, Scully, who's the uh, Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, right, Mike? That's she, um, she was She was saying exactly the same thing. Localisation at a more suburban level um, is going to be, you know, a real kind of birthplace or, or rebirth place, I guess you could say, um, with hospitality in those areas. Um, really, I guess, seeing the advantage of people being closer to home more often um, and therefore looking for experiences that do sort of originate within a couple of, you know, maybe kilometres from from where they're living. So um, that's definitely something we'll see 
here, I think, in the flexible working space. I think your approach is actually pretty interesting in terms of using it as an opportunity to scale up, but I think a lot of businesses will be looking at their existing footprint and saying, well, how can I actually save a bit of money on rent, have less people in the office and take less floor space, which is going to have a pretty significant impact on a range of different uh, uh, businesses and, and individuals in professional capacities. And Luke Butler, always ahead of the curve, that garage space in Roseberry. Right, just think just think about that. <laughs> well, we can have a, I've had a couple of lock-ins here already. Is that what you're referring to? Turn this into a bit of a bar or a club or something? Something like that. <laughs> what, what, what is going on in, in Sydney or in Australia in the, um, in the F&B space at the moment? Nothing. So um, closed or open for <laughs> yeah. delivery? Oh, yeah, no, mate. There's, I mean, there's a lot of businesses uh, trying their hand at delivery. I think to varying successes. You know, it's it's um, similar proposition as you guys have seen over there. I think developing the um, the customer base very quickly has been a challenge. I think we've gone through a bit of a peak and trough period. I think when um, when everyone was put into lockdown, effectively, there was a lot of hype around it. Um, most major businesses went out with a, a solution and everyone was talking about what they were eating, what restaurant they were eating from that night, and, you know, ready to eat or ready to eat meals, for example, were really popular. But um, that seems to have worn off a little bit. There's a couple of businesses doing takeaway that wouldn't ordinarily. Um, one of my old colleagues was speaking, sorry, there go my dogs, uh, was speaking about getting a bacon and egg roll from a two-hat restaurant in Newtown last week. You know, for ten dollars fifty, where you'd normally be spending two hundred dollars a head to dine in the restaurant, and there were lines around the block. So, businesses are taking it in different directions. But I feel like, as of the last sort of week, there's been a bit of excitement about getting reopened over here. Um, Northern Territory have, have opened pubs as of the end of this month, I think, or the end of this week. Queensland announced today that they'll start rolling back restrictions next month, so um, restaurants and cafes can start getting um, some more people through the doors. But the biggest challenge here is, like, you guys knowing what capacity we're going to be able to trade in, whether it's one per four square metres or, um, you know, I don't know, Mike knows better than me because he's more tied in with the with government and people who yeah. know more. But um, that's all still yet to come to um, come to the surface or be made clear. Yeah, and I, like, I, mean, I, I, I just want to reiterate, like, I think that the – there's a real advantage in having these conversations across multiple territories because what we'll be able to do in New South Wales is look at Northern Territory and Queensland ahead of a reopen in in the major major states of Australia being New South Wales and Victoria when it comes to F&B and, and the opportunity that presents is to learn from what, what can be made to work. Um, and it, so... I think some of those things that Luke are discussing are all up for discussion. It definitely won't be four square metres um, per person if, if today's meeting was anything to go by. I think um, one of our key hospitality figures, Justin Hems, came out and said it's just unworkable for small bars and restaurants, you know. It sort of suits larger venues and that's encouraging to hear that there's some nuance going to be applied to it. But, yeah, I think... Um, how do they calculate the one in four square metres? Is it is it like... This is how much I pay for rent. This is my square meter. I think you, I think you go and measure. Meters. You go and measure a poker machine and see how much its space it takes up. And <laughs> like, I'm not even making. I think I, like I just think it's that 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 was the metric that they used. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I believe that Clubs New South Wales has come out and 
you know, suggested that we can seat people at every alternating poker machine uh, as long as as long as the cha-ching keeps going. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's um, I, I, I'm I'm not even making it up. I think that that was the the um the the, the where that rule came from. Um, yeah, but but, uh, if, it's, th- but if it's if it's calculated at you know like so if it's calculated at one, at, at based on how much you 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 know space you have in your lease, right? So you know if I take a place like Neon Pigeon, which has about 160 square meters in total, including kitchen, backup house, everything. And I divide it by four. Uh, that, that's basically saying I can get 40 people in there. That was our one meter distance was basically 40 people. Is that about right, bro? We got about 40 yeah. people in there on our okay. one meter distance. So that's about the same. It's just a different, if that's the calculation, if that's the way they come up with it, the computation, then, then it's about the same. And, and, and so that puts you at about, you know, half capacity of what, well, certainly for us at Neon Pigeon, it puts us at about half capacity. Um, at, at Fat Prince, it puts us at maybe you know a, a little bit, a little bit different than that, not not far off. But look, that yeah, that can get you to break even. You know, that can get you by. But again, that doesn't save like nobody. Nobody's like, oh, I can't wait to break even the next three years. You know? <laughs> let me let me let me bust my butt for a totally uncertain universe and work all my weekends. So that maybe if I'm really lucky, I could break even for three years. Like that's just a lot, a lot of people who are going to be like, yeah, what are my other options? I think if businesses look at their uh, venues as platforms to drive more than just food and beverage revenue on site, we, we should and could start to see some quite exciting innovation coming. I mean, everyone was very quick to innovate when, not everyone, sorry, I, I tend to speak in broad generalities, but a lot of businesses were very quick to innovate when um, this all sort of started happening. And like you said, you know, come, came up with solutions that were suitable for a one to two week time period, but things evolved and um, changed so quickly that they just went untenable. But um, I don't know, it's my position that um, the real period of innovation kind of needs to begin when the doors come back open, you know. The fact that you have got that trade on site that could get you to break even to subsidise your business with costs that probably don't need to move too much if you add an extra layer of service or a different product service. We might start to see some more exciting things happen if, if people apply themselves. Yeah, look, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, it's like we talk about a model that's worked. Um, Hong Kong could be used as one, right? Um, Hong Kong has stayed open for restaurants, um, so no bars, no karaoke, um, no... Uh, no bowling alleys or God knows what, but um, restaurants have been allowed to trade and they were allowed to trade with this rule of 1.5 meter distance between tables and no more than groups of four. Um, has that been sustainable for venues? Probably not, um, but they've been around. Um, they managed to keep their doors open um, and now starting this week, that group of four law rule is going to be eased to group of six or groups of eight. So, you know, if there is anything, it's the uh, the model of Hong Kong, which has been very interesting, where it's been limited capacity, but businesses have still been allowed to stay open um, with the hope that that capacity gradually increases as the risk of infections and the control of the virus, um, you know, comes into play. Well, can I ask, on, on the Hong Kong topic, what's the feeling like over there having come off the period of, I guess, unrest or uncertainty with the protests um, and then kind of essentially into coronavirus. Is it 
does it feel tangibly different between Singapore and, and, and Hong Kong or is it, I don't know, what, what's, the, what's the mood like amongst people? Yeah, look, I mean, like Hong Kong is, Hong Kong was always bustling, right? Like if you, if you think about Hong Kong and, you know, that central area, it's like you've just got that, you know, restaurants and bars and places just teeming with people, right? Um, Even on a Monday. Yeah, any night of the week. Every night. Um, mm. That whole atmosphere has completely disappeared. Like, I mean, you're lucky to see a few people out. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's now shifted to more residential neighborhoods and areas. Um, and people just feel more comfortable being out in those residential areas and neighborhoods where, you know, they either live in or, you know, is in close proximity to where they live. Um, they don't want to go out into, you know, the, the, the places where there used to be throngs of people and used to turn into a madhouse. Um, that's just gone. Is that ever going to come back online? I, I don't know. Um, mm. But for now, it just doesn't exist. Yeah, right. So, you know, talk about changing landscape, Hong Kong's seen it, right? It's like you've literally gone from places in the CBD that were extremely busy to now places in residential neighborhoods that are extremely busy. Seems to be a pretty my, common theme. Mm. Yeah, my, my gut is telling me when, when you ask a question like, will it ever come back? And I don't know the answer either, right? Nobody does. But my gut is telling me that the answer to that is going to have a lot to do with how long are we at risk? You know, um, if, if there's a vaccine quickly and life gets back to normal, then maybe things will go back to normal, uh, with a couple of minor shifts. If, um, if all of a sudden we've got a bunch of drugs that can manage this thing so that it's not deadly, it's just a really bad flu at that point because we have the medication to manage it. Uh, if that happens quickly, which is obviously a lot more, I don't want to say likely, but more potential than, you know, faster potential than a vaccine, um, you know, then maybe people are like, well, that's not so bad. I'm, I'm not too worried about it. It would suck, but so be it. Um, but I think if this, if we kind of go in and out of lockdown, which is a possibility, if a vaccine never comes, which is a possibility, I mean, there's lots of stuff that doesn't have a vaccine. Um, you know, if, if, if any of that happens, it, then you, you know, and the longer that this goes on, the more repercussion I have, I think it'll have because the more it gets into your psyche. Right. Um, and I, and I think, I think that's it. Like how much does it bury itself into you? And it, yeah, you know, mm. that's just time. I mean, like the one thing to throw into the mix here is something that came up with today's government meeting, which is that the do you would you rather a li lifting of restrictions slowly or wait a little longer and then a bit more of a hard bounce back in? Um, because if you think about the startup costs, um, society's belief in safety. Um, uh, while out communal gatherings uh, because the consequences of um, a, a second wave from where Australia is now, you know, it's like I, I don't know what the economic output it will be. You know, that'll be the thing that everyone's mm. on everyone's mind. So, you know, it's um, but but at the same time, you it's they feel like it's hard to generate consumer buy-in on mass if you're just lifting restriction by restriction. You know, so it's this kind of 
debate that we'll, we'll, we'll be having for the next few weeks at least and hopefully it sheds some, some insights because I think that fundamentally Australia in some ways is now ahead of um, where Singapore particularly is because you're in lockdown and we're kind of starting to talk about recovery. So we're going to have to sort of be the guinea pigs, all the people up north anyway. Luke, what do you reckon in all the territory might uh, might be the ones to go first? Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, worse yeah, than that, I've got to worry. Uh, it's it's did you have any... Um... No, go Sorry. On. I didn't Come. hear you talking. He's got to make a bad um, joke about Did you have any restrictions implemented? Right. <laughs> Did you have any restrictions implemented and then relaxed on any level, not just with F and B? And, and I'm only asking this, Mike, you mentioned a hard bounce. I think um, we've seen a real appetite for people to not actually care that much about their health and safety um, when there have been some restrictions um, relaxed, particularly in relation to, like, beaches. We've had a couple of instances in New South Wales and Victoria where they've closed beaches, they've reopened them, and the next day they are absolutely packed and people seem to not really care, which could potentially bode well for a hard bounce um, irrespective yeah. of what kind of conditions are put in place. Have you, have you experienced similar things in either Hong Kong or Singapore or, um, and, um, or, or not? Sorry. For, for Singapore, we're just now starting to do, I think, the first round of slight relaxations today, another round next Monday, and then um, I think three weeks after that, we'll have a, a third round, and then we don't even know what that third round looks like yet. So right now they've announced what's happening today, they've announced what's happening next Monday, but what's happening June 1st, we don't know yet. So, um, at, at, you know, we'll find out when we get closer, I guess, but you know, and, and, and I do think it's worth it's worth mentioning. I have seen a lot of press about Singapore. I think there is this misconception in the international press that um, that it's still out of control here, um, and 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 I I could see how that would be the case, but it, and it's out of control in the foreign worker dormitories. But foreign worker dormitories don't exist in. Western countries like Australia uh, or like United States, where I'm from. Um, so it's, it's like the equivalent of having a massive cruise ship where you put everybody who picks up the trash, washes dishes in restaurants, uh, you know, does janitorial services, um, builds buildings, you know, all, all, those, all the sort of lower price labor, they come in from overseas. It's an imported labor and they live in these dormitories. They're really close together and it's just like a Petri dish, like a, like a cruise ship. So it's ripped through that community, and that community is all on lockdown, full quarantine. So the cases in the, in the community at large, we're down to like, you know, 10 a day at this point. So it's, it's, it's not, you know, I think there's a big misconception out there. I just wanted to clarify that. So as they start to loosen, they're not loosening in the foreign worker dormitories. Which, you know, uh, finally, they're starting to look at the... Uh, human rights, I guess, of those, you know, <laughs> the ethics of it all, because I think they realize this really is bit them in the butt. Um, but, you know, the, the truth is, as, as we relax, it's going to be interesting. We haven't, we haven't had it yet. So I guess we just don't know. And uh, like I was interested in, in the Hong Kong experience of the um, distance of the tables in four, six, eight, um, which I think may be of interest to people here as we sort of debate policy. But, Mike, what restrictions are they lifting you know, you said there's three rounds coming. Like, what are they actually doing? Rounds one and two. I said, I know you said round three. You don't know. Um, I, I I don't have them all exactly 
off the top of my head, I don't know if, bro, if you do, because they don't necessarily apply directly to anything that we do, but it's like home bakers who sell product can go back to, to right. selling product out of their homes. Uh, pet, sh- pet shops are reopening. Uh, barber shops, shops, I think, are, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, okay. And then so next week little- you've got confectionaries, packet snacks, beverage-only vendors like coffee shops. Um that are now allowed to come back or that will be allowed to come back online next week. And then further to that, we don't know what's going to come week three and week four. I mean, I think, I think if I can be honest with what I think a best case scenario is, I think a best case scenario is pre lockdown with the social distancing measures in place and all of that. I think that is a, if we keep doing, if we keep going on the trend that we're going on, you know, by the time we get to June 1st, we'll be at like, you know, three cases a day or two, three cases a day, something like that. Then that's a, that's a, that's a potential. Although I did just get a message from the government today. I'm on a, you know, the WhatsApp announcement group that the government has, which is actually really great because it keeps you informed uh, amongst all the other propaganda that you get. But, um, <laughs> uh, but it basically was saying after the circuit breaker, Right now, they said that 70% of the workforce is staying home. 70% of the entire Singapore is working from home. And they want that to continue after the circuit breaker finishes. Uh, so that's going to be interesting because I don't know if, if some of that, how much of it's going to be mandatory, how much of it is not. That's going to be really interesting because I'm going to be anxious to get some of my people back into the office and we're going to want to start getting back to work. But uh, now I'm talking in the, in the consulting business, but... Um, but I'm also going to be anxious to keep people home when I can as well. And so we're mm-hmm. going to, we're going to find a balance of that, but is that going to be government mandated or is that just going to be a suggestion like landlords giving us a rent break? <laughs> <laughs> On your broader business, um, Mike, what are you seeing? Obviously um, you can bring up what you do to life a little bit more, but I'll probably define it pretty poorly, but I understand you um, consult design um, to a lot of hotel businesses, um, perhaps yeah. primarily, but you can correct me there. But globally, um, yeah. What are your what are the implications to that sector? Do you think um, because it's obviously been hammering ahead for quite some time? I mean, the, the movement there is part of the reason why I entered Singapore in the first place. Um, after speaking with people like yourself, so w- what do you forecast for? Um, for the accommodation sector and, and sort of more global development trends that were, as I said, on, absolutely on fire. Is that going to just fall apart, do you think? Yeah, well, the, the the development is where I spend my time, right? So the reopening of existing properties, I could only speculate, and I'm, and I'm not really the, the, the best person for that necessarily. But uh, I spend my time in analyzing markets, strategy, and potential for positioning and brand positioning of product, and then bringing that to life with design and, and, and construction. And uh, mostly in the hotel sector, uh, also freestanding restaurants, bars, uh, some retail developments, um, and, and, and sort of major, major brands as well. Um, uh, look, uh, it's interesting. Everybody who, all of my clients who were in the middle of their projects, are continuing, regardless of their country, and we're worldwide. I've got I've got three offices around the world, and uh, you know, while well, I had seventy five employees, I bet we're down to about fifty five now. 
um, after the, the COVID, you know, kind of clawbacks. Um, but all of my clients who were in mid project are going ahead. So everything that was funded, no one's pulling the plug. They're moving forward. And I think that their view has been, listen, I wasn't going to get open for another two years anyway, you know, year and a half, two years anyway. So why would I slow down? I can't predict anything that's going to happen in a year and a half, two years. So I, I should just keep going for now. Um, and, and, and also they're funded, right? So at that point you're, you know, you're, you're moving forward. Um, anything that was awaiting funding has absolutely gone cold. So, mm. you know, and then there's, there's kind of the stuff in between. There's the stuff that had been seeded with either all funding or some funding, but, um, but hadn't actually started the work in earnest yet. And those guys have all waited, but they're all telling me, hang on, I'm going to call you in two weeks and then I'll call you in two weeks after that. And then I'll call you in two weeks after that. And I'm going to check in with you every two weeks until I figure this out. Mm. Whereas, so it's almost like this, you know, one group of people who's like full steam ahead, one group of people who's like, well, we're out, we're done. And another group of people who's like, every two weeks, I'm going to check in because as soon as I can do it, I want to. So, um, you know, I think there was this original view from all the major hotel brands and, you know, almost every hotel, major hotel brand had told me the same thing because I went and talked to them and they're like, no, 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 we're going to be doing a lot of CapEx work. But, you know, we're going to be, <laughs> we're going to be doing lots of refurb. This is the best time for refurb. And then, you know, I think they got the, the reality dose of owners being like, what are you talking about? I don't have any money. Are you crazy? Like all, all our income is gone. What, what am I going to spend? Um, and so, you know, that, that just hasn't, hasn't materialized, but, but new builds that are funded have been, have been moving ahead. So, um, look, I, I think the biggest impact of this, it's, it's interesting because I'm on with, with Rohit, I'm on one trajectory and with, with EDG, I'm on another trajectory. Um, and so the one trajectory with, with Dandy Collection is we got smacked fast, hard, got to figure it out. How do we react right now? But EDG is based on ongoing projects over some of them are two-year contracts. Some of them are four-month contracts. It just depends. Um, and so I've been able to position that company a little bit easier where I'm, I'm, I've planned up until August where I'm all right until August and, and everything's fine until August. What happens after August, that's going to depend on whether or not people, things start to loosen up a bit and things start to move. If they don't, if they do, then we're good. If they don't, then, then, then we'll have to see what happens. Whereas I think the restaurants will start to come back to a point where, you know, we can get to that break even point or maybe even get a little bit of profit or something within the next five months, potentially. So while one is coming up, the other one could be going down and, 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 and vice versa. So it's, a, it's an interesting time for, for the industry because I think even within the industry, different sectors of different subsectors of the sector are on different tra trajectories. I know you um, tend to take a fairly, again, reclassify or redefine this for me, but uh, quite a strong approach in terms of understanding market segments relevant to the developments that you're doing. So a heavy amount of consumer insight research yes. um, and Correct. creating um, products or 
offerings in design that speaks to a, quite a, I guess, a hyper-local market as opposed to a one-size-fits-all approach. Have you had to apply any revision to any of the work that you're doing based on what's happened now, whether it be through design or reanalysis of consumer trends um, or gathering new insights? You know, are you spacing tables differently in restaurants that were scheduled to open in six months or months? Is that relevant at all? Uh I don't think I have anything necessarily in a position where I would need to re sort of redo the work now, so to speak, but, you know, give me another two months and maybe that'll change because I, I think we don't, we don't have the answers yet of what the new normal is going to be. And I don't even think we have the inkling of what the new normal is going to be. We don't even, you know, it's just a, 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 a a tiny little bubble of a thought in the back of everybody's mind that's just starting to germinate. When is it really going to start to get some body to it? And, you know, um, I just don't think we're, we're at that stage yet. So would I reconsider some of the work maybe, but would I change it now? No, because I'm not ready to give a recommendation yet of where I think it's going to go. Uh, but over, I think over the course of the next one to two to three months, that's going to start to become a reality. I think, I think there's just, you know, that's the messed up thing about our industry right now for all of us. It's just, and I, I guess the whole world, but for our own sake, for our own industry, it's just, there's so many unknowns. I mean, like, have you ruled out things like hotel developments in Australia, for example, being converted into residential apartment buildings, things of that nature. I mean, it's done, been done before uh, in, in city market um, because it's hard to, it's just hard to envisage, you know, the, the tourism trajectory for Australia prior to this was what was driving the hotel sector development, I would argue, in largely. That was the macro um, in Australia. It, I get the two-year thing, but, like, this is, this is some backward stagger. Uh, on a whole pipeline of buildings. Look, I think it's two things. I think um, I think that the Australia hotel market had really been sleepy for a long time um, until until the development woke up, and so there was a lot of catching up to do. So some of it, I think, was international travel, which you so rightly pointed out. But I think some of it was just, oh man, we better catch up because we've we've been asleep at the wheel for a little while. Um, and, and, and so I think the part where they've been asleep at the wheel for a little while is going to have to continue. I think the international part, we're going to have to figure out over time to see whether international travel comes back and how long it comes back. Don't forget a new build development, you know, is, is a process of anything from, you know, two to five years, right? I, I, I'm, I'm working on a building that I've been working on already for four years. Um, and, and, uh, there's no opening date in sight, even without COVID. I mean, we were still four years away, potentially. It's, a, it's one of the mega, mega skyscrapers in the Middle East. Um, and so I think it's just a matter of, you know, uh, you know I, those long-term things, some of those people will speculate and, and will go for it. Um, but in terms of turning them into, into residential, my understanding, and, and again, I'm not an expert, but the information that I was led to believe was that the residential market was already massively slowing down. That the demand for residential, uh, and, you know, especially if you look at Brisbane, um, if, if you look at Melbourne, there was just so many residential units that, that came online, uh, you know, in the city areas. 
uh, and there was there was just more supply than than there was demand. So um, that began to slow down. I, I understood about a year and a half ago, uh, up to two years ago, and then up through up until now. So you know, pivoting in that direction may not be all that beneficial. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where where they where they pivot next. I, I I don't know. Maybe one of the nice things about that is we start getting some smaller hotels again you know, with people who really care about what they do and we get back to actual hospitality for a change instead of just, you know, you know, I'm about to get fired from every single job. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't let us stop you. Well Keep going. Yeah. I mean, can we, can we make it more personal again? Right. Like, can we make it more about the guest and the consumer and, and the relationship, you know, rather than about, you know, these big, big hotels just coming in and, and, and taking over. Well, I think it's a really good question and kind of, um, Luke, in terms of the Australian pub market as an example, so these are traditional hotels, boutique hotels that sort of went in a different direction and now if you're a public and you're looking at reduced footfall, you've got a level of food and beverage you can do, some gaming, and then you've probably got function spaces that, you know, could lend themselves to uh, boutique accommodation uh, again. It would be a bit full circle but you know the, the, these are the kinds of things that surely people must be you know thinking about would you agree i what, what like, i mean this is a bit f- a question for luke like what's going on in the pub sector specifically at the moment in australia do you know in terms of i think people uh operators are kind of doing similar or taking a similar approach to um Roland and michael in that maybe just holding tight a little bit um yeah, I mean, I haven't heard of an overwhelming trend. I think businesses, that the ones that come out that, um, or survive uh, or thrive will be the ones that do take a different approach. I don't think business as usual is going to suffice at all, um, particularly not in the short term. And, that, and short term could be uh, 24 months. Um, there's gaming-driven venues that I think will be fine. You know, they'll they'll get footfall back so they're poker machines and that that's fine that's what they do um but food and beverage driven um operators are going to have to think a little bit more laterally about how they trade i mean if you consider um i won't mention a business name but there are many businesses here that thrive on large-scale events and functions at christmas time you know a corporate event a corporate business might take a venue for a thousand people and pay 150 dollars a head and December pays a lot of bills for businesses. There is no way that's happening this year. I mean, I can't obviously speak with definition, but that's but I kind of just did at the same time. Like, what corporate giant is going to want to risk an our COVID cluster at this time by putting a thousand of their workers in the same room and and seeing what's happened? Just brand reputationally, they will not um, allow that to happen for probably eighteen months or until it's a vaccine. So. Um, you take away those kind of strong months of trade on the back of uh, the fire season that we had, um, you know, businesses, I think, through necessity are going to have to evolve. So accommodation's a good one. You know, a lot of pub, I think, were we at the Pub Leader Summit two years ago? Accommodation was one of the primary topics for discussion because a lot of pubs were going down that route. They were seeing the benefit of putting a hotel on their property or, or shifting space to accommodate rooms. That's definitely been a trend in place for, for a while, but I don't know. It's pretty exciting. I mean, it's actually going to be good to see the different ways that businesses look to develop revenue. Um, I was interested, Rohit, in terms of, I mean, Michael, obviously across the accommodation sector, but you've got properties in Bali, 
Um, correct? Still trading? Uh, no, we we sold our Bali property actually. Oh, did you? Right. Uh, when was that? Yeah. Actually, one week before all hell broke loose. Actually. Oh, <laughs> 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 there, um, well, I mean, you guys obviously have a um, obviously have a desire or willingness to look at properties in different markets. Um, is there any market that you're seeing or business type that you think is going to present with opportunity on the other side of this? Well, what do you think? I don't know. Um, like that's a great question, right? I mean, what what does you know, especially in our hospitality industry, what does the other side of this look like? Um, to be honest with you, you know, uh, uh, casual, home friendly, daily, simple. Um, you know, those are the words that come to mind um, as what people are looking for. Um, what does that look like? Does that look like fast casual? Does that look like you know, dining with delivery. Um, you know, I think that's going to be uh, that's going to be very interesting to see as things start to come back online and as we learn from you know the different markets. So far, what we're seeing in Hong Kong is businesses that were around are still around, and you know they're just coming back online in a similar way, just with reduced capacity to what they were before this. So, you know, as far as opportunity for new goes. Um, not really seeing anything out of the norm, at least as far as the restaurants go. Would you look at something now? Is that a potentially really stupid question? If something great came across your desk, would you have a crack? Look, if, if from my perspective, you know, Rose yeah. disagree with me if, 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 you, if you think, but we're always having our eyes open, always. And if there's a way that we think we can come up with something that looks good for the future, we're in. Um, so there's no hesitation about that. Mm. But but that that band of what used to be like, oh yeah, anything that fits between these two markers looks, you know, those markers are getting closer and closer together. And so I, yeah. you know, I I don't know what a business would look like that we would look at and go, Oh my God, that's awesome. Let's do that now. But we would, mm. we would have no hesitation if we saw one to do it. I think Ro. Absolutely. I think the, the key to all of this is going to be capital and, you know, where and how capital looks like and how easily accessible it is. But, you know, take that equation out and, you know, seems like a, a, good time to keep your eyes peeled for uh, for opportunities especially if you know there are rentals landlords property uh, developers who are really understanding what's going on and what operators are gonna need or, or what it's gonna take for operators to be successful it's interesting well, so i wonder where um it'll be interesting to see where blue chip real estate or, 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 or properties right. um is in six months, 12 months. It's going to be really fascinating to watch. Yeah, yeah well, that could change the whole F&B landscape, right? Mm. Um, you know, if rents become more affordable, you know, I mean, the, the, the F&B industry is always plagued by this unstoppable force, immovable object scenario where people will only pay what they view the food is worth. Yeah. But the reality of the rising costs are making the margins shrink and shrink and shrink. Um, you know, 
at, at, at what point and and in the you know the margins aren't aren't big in the industry. So, you know, and even before any of this, you know, it, I mean, it was getting crazy in Australia with the minimum wages and, you know, all the, I, I feel bad for all the chefs who were going down in court, man, because they're like vilified and being hung out to dry. I mean, let's be honest. That was the whole industry. People were working overtime and not getting paid around the world because that was the restaurant business. And on, I'm not saying it was right. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that was reality, you know, for, for a lot of businesses. Singapore, we don't have that problem because in Singapore, everybody can be on salary, um, you know, a monthly salary. So it's, it's, a, it's a flat rate. It's not an overtime position. But in Australia, where you're hourly, in the United States, where you're hourly, all, I mean, I was, I was a cook, you know, before. I was I 13 years cooking. Um, and, and that's how we did it. I got paid for eight or 10 hours and I probably worked 15, you know? Mm. Um, and, and the thing is that these guys just got caught and now they've just been all, you know, sort of blacklisted, black labeled or whatever it is. It's just, it's a shame because, you know, I'm, I'm, look, I'm glad it's changing, right. I'm glad it's raising awareness, but what it is, what I've seen in the media has been a lot more of a lot less of there's a problem in the industry and a lot more of, you know, oh, that guy from MasterChef was terrible. Right. And, you know, it's, it, it, you, you've got to address the real, you know, root of the problem and the root of the problem is you know it has to be a sustainable industry a sustainable business where people can make a livable wage where where you know people can can dedicate their life to a craft right mm. that's how you get good quality product in any industry if you can commit yourself to to to, to having a good life at a craft but there has to be support for employees for that and if we can see rents start to get a little bit under control, maybe we can kind of redefine this post-chef backlash period. I just want to be clear because I I'm not defending the practice of underpaid yeah. people at all. You no, know, it's cultural of a systemic in the industry for a long time. I mean, I've written articles about that before as well, and you and, and you can sometimes feel like you're skirting on the edge of lending support or showing support. But um, it, it was part of the culture that I grew up in hospitality. I was working 60, 70 hours a week for next to nothing and never saw overtime. It just was the way it yeah. was. So it's just caught up with people. I just want to ask one more question because you brought it up. In terms of people in Singapore and like the employment market, how do you see uh, what we're experiencing now impacting that? Because Obviously, for those that don't know, there are obviously pretty tight government restrictions around the number of foreign workers you can employ, commensurate to domestic workers, the incentive is to employ a domestic worker, and the government is heavily pushing um, technology and its place within hospitality, right, in terms of, you know, hoping to get more more businesses using um, uh, ordering platforms uh, within venue as opposed to having staff so that they can drop the number of um, foreign workers employed. Do you think... What, what, what impacts do you think, um, Rohit, are going are to come about, if any? Like, it, it could remain unchanged. Unemployment's pretty much at, like, 0%, right? So um, maybe less foreign workers will remain in the country and it's going to be even harder to find people than it has been. But what are your thoughts? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think I mentioned the government subsidy and uh, the job support scheme in Singapore only applies to local Singaporean workers. So as a business... 
you know, we've got all these foreign workers um, that probably make up about 50% of our payroll, um, you know, that aren't getting a subsidy and the government isn't doing anything for them. Um, you know, right, wrong, who knows, but, you know, the government is committed to taking care of their own um, and the foreign workers don't fall into that category. So I think just by design of, you know, what businesses are going to be able to afford, what governments are going to subsidize, um, you know, there is going to be a shake out of less and less foreign workers, at least in Singapore. It's going to make it very challenging for the F&B industry because those workers were around to fill in for Singaporeans who didn't want to do that that work or those jobs. Um, you know, maybe now with the unemployment levels being where they are and, you know, if they do get uh, much higher, um, maybe we see a shift in the Singaporean workforce looking to take up F&B jobs and, you know, we don't have the requirement for foreign workers. So I think there will be a shift, um, yeah. maybe initially not because of, you know, the local workforce wanting to do the jobs, um, but more because businesses won't be able to sustain and support foreign workers. And then eventually, hopefully that gets backfilled with locals wanting to take up those jobs and finding F&B maybe a, a career path. Yeah, right. I think, I think that one thing we can all agree that's coming out of this is that uh, those who are open-minded and willing to take opportunity with both hands at, uh, and look at things will probably stand the best to, to gain from what's on the other side if you can be flexible. Um, so, gents, we're going to wrap up in a sec, but we want to ask you both a couple of, uh, let's say, more lighthearted questions. So uh, the, first, the first of which is in these, uh, these challenging times, what is the tipple of choice at home? For me, it's been a lot of margaritas, man. So <laughs> it's been a lot of margaritas. <laughs> Some excellent margaritas, right? What, what were you on? Just a beer. Just a beer. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Margaritas and a beer, always good. And um, and this is going to be challenging, but you have to respect the authenticity of the interview. We get out of lockdown. What venue do you want to go to that isn't your own? Like, what what are you hanging for that isn't your own? In Singapore, Hong Kong, globally. anyway. It, well, yeah. It, take the question as you will, but just can't say one of your own venues. Wow, Mike, you got this one. I got to think Look, about. Look, uh, I, I, uh, I had a flight to Istanbul booked in about three weeks from now, and uh, unfortunately, that's not happening. But um, you know, I, I could dream of of getting a kebab at Durham Zade. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I would say Tartine in San Francisco for me. Yeah, right. Well, well uh, I think that um, I'm actually considering opening my own speakeasy uh, in the next <laughs> next few weeks. So if you just happen to be garage. In, if you happen to be in the <laughs> so, yeah, interspersed with the dog barking. But, gents, uh, you've been more than generous with your time. We've covered a lot in there. Um, we re- really wish you the best of um, luck as you sort of re-examine businesses uh, and, and think about the future and, you know, hopefully uh, this conversation um, has been as, um, as helpful for you as it is for us in terms of just ideating and sort of looking at what uh, we can all do as we try and imagine a new future. So just want to thank you from Luke and I for being on the Back of House podcast. Thanks for thank having us, both. guys. Thanks, James. Thanks, Thanks been great. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.